0: XXEquals is a focused, user-centered innovation collective within Kennedy Ford, and this is our podcast. Our aim is to close the gap between perception and reality when designing for women. So jump in and join us as we talk to some of the leaders, experts, and trailblazers in this space.
1: Hello, and welcome to our Equals podcast. Today, I have the real pleasure of being joined by Abby Covert. And rather than me give Abby an introduction, I'm going to ask you, please, to just share with our listeners, Abby, um, a little bit about um, how you would describe the work that you do and um, your career journey to date. Welcome
0: thank you so much for having me Uh, so my name is abby covert i'm an information architect and an author i'm working out of melbourne florida these days so i went remote uh slightly before we were all remote i've been working remotely for about nine years now um so i'm kind of into it um in terms of my career i really fell in love early with the idea of helping people to make meaning with the work that they're doing especially in the design world Um, And I found myself in a a role early called information architect, which I had been introduced to in print design school a little bit differently than the way that it ended up in in technology. So when I went to design school, information architecture, um, to my knowledge, was kind of the hierarchy of a page and, and a message. And it wasn't until I graduated and kind of entered the world of tech and design for tech that I started to understand that there was a whole community of folks that were thinking about information architecture from a digital place uh, perspective and so I threw myself kind of fully into that world um, and I've been practicing that way for almost two decades now Um, and seven years ago I decided after several years of teaching in art schools without the right textbook that I could get people to actually read Um, I decided to write my own. So I wrote a book called How to Make Sense of Any Mess, and it claims to be uh, information architecture for everybody. And I have really enjoyed the last seven years figuring out who exactly this book is for. Um, I would say I wrote it for students and then I found out that it's really applicable to lots of folks and people have reached out to say they've cleaned out their garage or they've done their memoir. Um, I've had people say that they've like restructured their careers based on this book. So yeah, it's been a, a real pleasure. Um, and most recently um, I left tech um, to focus on writing my second book, which is about diagrams. So that should be out in, uh, in 2022. So very excited about that.
1: That's really exciting to hear that the second book is, at, is is on its way and and i love your first book and i love the idea um of this kind of broader application um because i think it's it's true and actually it just really starts starts the the mind ticking over as to how we in so many respects silo our lives and actually one of the things that covid has has made happen and i know you know you were working remotely before but for a lot of people who've had to change The way they work significantly over the last 18 months or so, a lot of those silos are disappearing, aren't they? So actually the whole space around information architecture and what that means becomes even more important and relevant.
0: Yeah, because I mean, we all pretty much overnight went to working exclusively in digital architecture. I mean, even just the simple fact of you're not walking into a building and going into rooms with your coworkers, that's an architectural change. And I was part of, um, of XE, which is about a 1200 person team, uh, when everything went remote. And I was only one of, you know, the 20% of us that were remote before and watching all of my coworkers adjust to designing digital products, but now doing so in a completely digital environment with their coworkers. Um, it really opened my mind to like just how different it really can be. Um, and so, yeah, I think information architecture is even more applicable now than it's ever been before. And from what I can tell, it's, you know, information's not going away. We're getting more and more of it every day. So yeah, figuring out the structures and the labels and how to make meaning in all of this mess. Um, I think that it's really, it's a human challenge. Um, you know, I, I like to think about information architecture as sort of a retronym. It's something that's always existed it's as old as humanity is but we just didn't have the right word for it um, until you know it started to be applied to a lot of different mediums and and business contexts
1: absolutely and just for our our listeners abby just explain what you mean when you talk about information architecture because exactly as you say you know it surrounds everybody but they probably don't call it
0: that Absolutely.
1: Um, So information
0: architecture is the way that we arrange the parts of something to make sense as a whole. So that definition is fairly broad, Uh, you could apply that to uh, the pages and the labels for those pages and the structure that you attribute to those pages on a website. You could also look at the signage in a grocery store. Uh, you could look at you know, the flow that you go through in an ATM. All of those have structure and language as a part of them. So when you are determining the structure and language of the thing that you're making for other people or for yourself, you're practicing information architecture. That means that most people practicing information architecture don't know those words, um, which has become a real uh, opportunity and challenge for for us as a field to sort of get that knowledge out there, because I think that there is. There is limits in how good you can be at something if you don't have the ability to look into it from a practical skill perspective and find other people that are doing it and share the wisdom. So you see a lot of kind of like reinventing the wheel because people, you know, don't have the words to type into the Google to find the things that would make them better at the thing we all do all day. So it's it's a very interesting kind of space, I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really fascinated by what you're saying about your colleagues at, at, at Etsy and how mm-hmm. When they were designing digitally, remotely, how that t- that that mindset change or that mindset shift that you witnessed, having already been through that, what what did you see? What did you what did you notice about? Was it kind of was it useful to them, or was it was the change um, too significant at that point?
0: You know, I I think it's really interesting because at the very beginning of the pandemic, I remember people asking me for advice on going remote. And the number one piece of advice that I ended up giving people was to understand that even though you are currently working remotely, this is not what remote work is. Like, uh, remote under duress is not the best introduction to remote work. So I think that you know, from my perspective, watching my my coworkers go through that, it was really hard to sort of like separate the wheat from the chaff, like. What is the the like anxiety about the larger world context changing so rapidly and all of that um, anxiety and chaos that's happening externally? And then what is actually the function of the role um, and going remote in the role? I would say for, for me, one of the most significant changes that I saw was actually one of equity. Like I... As a remote employee, I was always beamed onto a screen in a room, and there's only so much power you can take in a room if you're only beamed onto a screen. But when everybody was beamed onto each other's screens and we're all in this little tile blocks, all equal, it felt a lot more like all of our voices were able to be at that same level. Um, and I saw that happen for other folks as well. So I think that there were there were certainly. Um, collaborative decisions that were made on teams that I was on that would have been made differently if if I had still been remote or or my other colleagues that were remote still were when other, everybody else was back in the office.
1: So it, it felt like it was creating a more equitable scenario because suddenly everybody was in in the same boat if you will but now we've got this challenge and, and I, again you know it's where it's it's changed the ways of working Beyond all recognition. So, in our business, for example, we've said to our team, "You can work however you want." So, if you want to work remote, I mean, assuming obviously some of our team need to be physically on site to use um, resources, mate, you know, materials, machinery, etc. But you know, take aside, if you take those practicalities away. We've said you can work however you want, wherever you want, and you know, flexibility and hours and location, everything. So, you end up with the with the hybrid scenario, and how have you? How have you? I guess you know you're working. You know you're focusing on your writing now, and, and and you're not in that same situation. But what would you say from from your understanding of of that? What would you say the potential pitfalls to try and avoid are as people as some people return to the office and others don't?
0: Yeah, I mean I think that the um, along with the change, and then you know when everybody went remote, we had to really think rethink everything from like an all remote first. When everybody goes back, but some stay home sometimes and that hybrid option, I think that it's really forcing something that a lot of us that have worked remote for years have really wanted from the industry, which is to provide that hybrid option as the first line of what you're planning. Um, So it comes down to everything. Like the way that you take attendance in a meeting is different when you have hybrid. The way that you think about leading a conversation is different. Um, Whether or not you have chips in the room uh, is different, you know, like that's one thing as a remote that I can tell you is please stop eating potato chips (laughs) on the phone when you have remote people, like, yes, you're in a room with folks, but we can hear you crunching and it's awful. Um, so yeah, I think that like all of the hybrid solutions really are, are coming to the forefront and you're, you're as a leader, you're being asked to assume that people might be remote that day and some people might not. I also think that it really called for, uh, especially for management, it called into question what exactly is necessary to do in public and in person. Um, You know, in some cases, I think that we thought that those hallway conversations um, were to be, you know, prioritized all over everything else. And like being in the office was the way to get visibility. But I think as people start returning um, based on their own personal decision, we're really going to have to rethink that because we don't want to get into a world where you can't get the Um, the influence over people in your organization unless you decide to show up. And I think that that was happening for many years when some of us were working remote by choice and everyone else was in the office. It was sort of assumed that you could only take a certain level of leadership position. You could only uh, exert so much power on a certain direction a project could take. And I think that we're really having to kind of question all that and rethink it. And, And like, when you say that you have to go in for some things, what are those actual things? Because Being in the same room together so we can smell each other is not necessarily always required. Um, And sometimes, you know, some of the conversations I've found um, can maybe be more comfortable for people if they're in their home environment. And they can turn their camera off if they're feeling weird or whatever. You can't turn your camera off in in person. So, um, yeah, I'm very enthused to see kind of like where the the next generation, especially of designers, take that that opportunity, you know, because it is our opportunity to not go back and do things the way we did before.
1: Absolutely. And I I couldn't agree more. And also the opportunity to really question yourself and challenge yourself as to why your biases exist around some of those behaviours.
0: Yes, exactly. Like, is it really true that you need to be in person to get that task done? Or have you just told yourself that your whole life or been told that your whole life? Um, I think, yeah, we're all getting the opportunity to really question those things. Yeah,
1: definitely. It's really, really fascinating. I'm 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 going off tangents. So I'm gonna I'm gonna rein myself back <laughs> okay. uh, as, as I as I often do. And um, thank you for your def- definition of information information architecture. I think it's very very succinct and very very accurate and very clear actually. And I think um, I'm sure people who are listening now are probably thinking of various scenarios that they're, they're actually they've been through that day where they've had to do exactly that and had to kind of understand what what that is. And and. I was really interested to kind of understand as to what you see in the way, you know, building on that conversation of, of our own biases, what you see in terms of biases within information architecture. And because obviously, you know, it's it's the same when people are talking about things like AI, et cetera, that the the individuals who are responsible for creating the foundations of of what you know of those processes of those programs of 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 the way in which we're defining and and taking forward how do we create an equitable sort of vision of what that can be moving forward and and how do you think that currently sits within the world that you inhabit around information architecture
0: yeah i think that one of the one of the core concepts when i'm teaching information architecture that sort of becomes the light bulb moment for a lot of students is when I introduce the idea of mental models. So a mental model is, you could think of it like a map of all of the knowledge and experience that you individually hold. And you carry this thing around in your brain all day long, even when you're sleeping, no matter what you're doing, and you're adding to it all the time. So right now you're listening to this podcast and you maybe know the word information and you know the word architecture. I'm putting those things together, perhaps for the first time for you. And now you're you're getting a new thing added to your, your mental model. So I feel like people, um, when they learn that concept, it's often in service of serving users, right? Like you need to understand the mental model of the user in order to design for them. The thing that I, I think is equally, if not more important, is to actually acknowledge your own mental model for what you're designing and who you're designing for. So in a lot of cases, you're bringing baggage with you about what you assume about that audience, your past experience with that audience the things you've been told about that audience or read in a report or or what have you. And every single moment that you're working on something for that audience is your opportunity to not just think about their mental model of what it might be, but to also start to inform your own and see where the gaps are. Um, This also applies for when you're working with other people. You know, there's very few projects that we're delivering all by ourselves. But when we go in as a team, we can make the mistake of thinking that we're all on the same page from a mental model standpoint. And we often are not. I mean, unless you are consciously having the time to discuss the differences of your mental model with your team members, you're almost guaranteed to have very different understandings of the world, what is true. I mean, just like really big concepts that you can disagree on. And what I see happen is that often those conversations when they're not had early and often, they end up having them late and in ways that push projects around in uncomfortable ways. So you might get all the way to designing an interface before you realize that one of your key stakeholders has just a vehement disagreement on the truth of something that is core to the the way that you're designing. Um, So I would say that it's really important as an information architect or someone practicing information architecture, that you're really thinking about your own biases and that you're unpacking um, sort of what you're bringing into the room Uh, as a part of deciding what you're going to take out of the room. Um, And I think that that's a really hard skill to develop. It's one that, you know, I would say for the first 10 years practicing IA, I wasn't doing a good job at it. I was definitely one of those designers that, well, if they could just get it, I just need to make them get it. If I explain it more, if I bring them another diagram, if I annotate it, now they'll understand it. And what I realized, maybe a little too late, but not too late for my students, um, is that stepping back, and thinking about what that person that you're working with is thinking about is actually more important than trying to get your point across. Because once you know, you can actually inform their mental model in a responsible way that takes into account where they're starting from, um, which is just a more humane way to work than, you know, constantly arguing with each other over the truth of things.
1: It's it's really interesting, Dave, isn't it? Because I, I quite often in the field of design talk about the perception reality gap and you know everyone's bringing their own perception with with them and actually what you're talking about abby is a a, an incredible degree of self-awareness when you're thinking Mm -hmm. about what that process is but as we both know not everyone in the world has fantastic self-awareness and when you've got those stakeholders that you need to bring with you on that journey and there's clearly um that perception reality gap that exists and actually Mm -hmm. often you see Reality almost stops having as much meaning because actually it's the individual's perception that's leading um, rather than, you know, what the collective view might be. How do you, how do you, um, you talked about sort of bringing, you know, how you, you try and see, I guess, see things from their perspective. But how do you try and, I guess, persuade them that there is potentially another way and, and bring those stakeholders with you? Hmm. So
0: persuasion is definitely, um, it's an art. It's one that I I have worked on, my whole career will continue to work on. I wouldn't say that I'm great at it yet, uh, but one thing that I have definitely learned is probably best summed up by the idea that we have two ears and one mouth, and we should probably use them accordingly. Uh, So one of the the things that I put into my practice uh, probably about a decade back was, I do a really heavy investment in the front of my process with one-on-one interactions with each of my stakeholders. So what I see happen a lot is that a facilitator will get assigned to something you know, from an architectural or a design standpoint, and they'll have a big old kickoff meeting and everybody will be in the room and they'll have all of these you know, like discussion points and they'll expect everybody to come honestly and authentically as who they really are. But the reality is that the power dynamics in that room, what everybody had for breakfast that day, how they feel about the last time this thing was ch- uh, tried or the last person who tried it, all of that really impacts what happens in that room so i would say that um, a lesson for me is that mental models need to be unpacked slowly and individually which can seem like a huge investment of time but what ends up happening is you save all of that time on the back half because once you've understood everyone from where they're coming from and you can sort of see it without trying to change it right you're just seeing how they see things not trying to influence or change how they see it Then you get into the process of working in pursuit of the experience for a user and you're able to, as a facilitator, have better conversations to bring those people in um, in different ways. So rather than, you know, saying like, well, uh, you know, Bob thinks this and Sally thinks that I might come in and say, you know, there's people in this room that believe that this is the case, but there's equally people in this room that believe that this is the case. And I can take myself as sort of the the third party that can kind of explain both points of view and then open up the room for discussion. And what I find is a lot of times people persuade themselves, you know, once you've outlined the opposite point of view and they see their coworkers talking with passion and heart for that thing and giving color to it that's outside of their mental model, they can grasp onto that and they don't ever have to admit that they thought differently. And that can be an invitation and a gift to a lot of people to sort of like, come along with us as opposed to you know being the the thing that stands in the way towards the end they're like this isn't this isn't what i thought it would be um yeah so that that's how i take it but like i said it's a it's a lifelong skill to develop working with other people
1: it absolutely is but I, I love that idea of um of having those discussions up front understanding what success looks like initially for all of those people and then encapsulating that in that meeting so it's as you say i think it's very very important that people don't feel that um, that they thought one thing and then actually it's going in a completely different direction um yeah. you know and and that they can't sort of get on board with that whereas you i guess you can you can iron out a lot of those things beforehand i think that's that makes a lot of sense but and um, abby now i can imagine sort of in the parallel kind of field of and and very closely intrinsically linked field of design um there are i've got an idea of what some of the challenges are um uh, with you know mm-hmm. that you face sort of kicking off a program and 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 actually taking that through to fruition um but mm-hmm. i would love to hear from you what some of your biggest challenges have been um, within the field of information architecture
0: i would say that balance is probably the number one for me personally and uh you know, I, I talked to enough uh, other women in this field to know that I'm not alone there. Um, you know, i I felt for the first ten years of being an information architect that I had to be twenty five percent better than my male colleagues just to be measured as the same. Um, and that that wears on a person over time. Uh, it specifically wears on a person when they don't know that that's actually what's happening because people aren't talking about it. So I've been really enthused to see, how many women are coming forward with their stories of how hard it is to build that balance in the beginning of, of their careers. Um, I myself, I, I kind of assumed that I would never start a family because I'm a career person. And that was kind of what I was brought up believing is you pick one and that's, that's the way you're going to go. And um, And challenging all of those assumptions that I was brought up with, I think, has been uh, a parallel challenge to learning the actual practice of the craft that I'm in. So, I don't think that that's actually unique to information architecture. I think that's just like unique to being a woman in the field that was not primarily female. Um, so, yeah, I, I think like when I look back on my career, you know, coming back from uh, parental leave after I, I had my son, that was a whole new world. like i I had expected because I had reached a you know a fairly senior level. I was in an organization with a lot of influence, I had kind of assumed that that part wouldn't be the way that I had heard about it from other women. Um, and instead I experienced that it was exactly that way, that you're still expected to perform that extra 25% extra, but now it was to be as good as the the people that are not yet parents. Um, and that was new for me. I, I hadn't really realized, um, kind of the impact of having not been a parent, um, and how I had maybe, uh, treated parents in early in my career or thought about parents. Um, and now I'm facing that in the opposite where I'm like, oh my goodness. Yeah you're freaking tired. (laughs) You're really, really tired. And also, it just I'm sorry to say it just doesn't matter as much anymore. Like, it's very, very difficult when you have a sick child downstairs to think it is even important to be in a meeting talking about what a button is called for some website that, you know, a couple 1000 people are going to use eventually, like it just doesn't seem like it, it adds up. So I think over time, that's been the biggest challenge is sort of like, rearranging the information architecture of my life to match who I actually want to become, as opposed to modeling myself after all of these men that were in my industry before me. I mean, there's obviously female leaders in our industry. um, But a lot of us stayed very, very quiet for a very long time about our lives. You know, just uh, a friend of mine actually told me a couple weeks ago, she said, I finally decided I'm not going to show up at work wearing a 50 year old white man suit anymore. And it was like she she really thought about her role like that, that she had to, like, pretend to be a different age and a different gender just to be seen as equal. Um, And I think that I'm hearing that more and more from my peers as something that we're rejecting and, and starting to really refocus on, like, what does the future look like if it doesn't look like that?
1: It's interesting, isn't it? Because the more senior you become, the more permission you give yourself. Because you you kind of or I or certainly I I I feel that way. I used to have two two shell two and um, rails in my wardrobe, and it was my work wardrobe and my home wardrobe and my not work wardrobe. And never the twain should ever meet, you know but now i think it's just all it's just all polos and jeans you know
0: it's- i mean thank goodness the high heel culture i i mean i know women that love wearing them but i am so thankful i only have one wardrobe now instead of you know playing the part that you're supposed to play cuz that i mean it's it's so conflicting when you're you're mentally supposed to show up as an older white man but uh, physically you're supposed to show up as a 25 year old supermodel to get along and it's just <laughs> Okay, yes, how do you reconcile this? And and like I said before, it's like when you're coming through that, especially if you're in a um a work environment with so few females and and so few in leadership positions, you literally don't know that that is what's happening. You just are adjusting in time and then over time you realize it. And you're like, wow. And the only way that we realize it is by having conversations like this, which, you know, that's why I appreciate this podcast.
1: Yeah, and and we appreciate you Abby. I think You know, finally, this realisation and this recognition that it's it's a good thing to bring emotion to work and passion. It's a good thing to to bring empathy and understanding and consideration of others. And, you know, and Mm -hmm. there are these toxic cultures that exist, whether it's around, you know, uh, ambition or, um, you know, or kind of what what a leader should look like or, you know, all of these um, all of these factors that have existed for so, so long. Um, and yeah. you know, I'm really I am feeling very hopeful at the moment I mean there's a huge yeah. way to go but at least the conversations are starting and also what's really great is actually it's not just rooms full of women having these conversations anymore that's how it started yeah. and and I've you know I've spent a long number of years in rooms full of women talking to women about imposter syndrome and and leadership and support networks and And, you know, and how to ask for raises and all of those kind of things. But actually, you have to involve everyone in those conversations. Otherwise, nothing actually really moves. Uh, And that's what encourages me. Those conversations are getting broader.
0: Yeah, no, I've definitely seen that trend as well. I've I've seen an uptick in my male colleagues going to therapy, which I consider to be like number one KPI of change (laughs) because they they do realize that we're we have something here like there we're on to something um i recently was was listening to i don't even remember who it was and they were talking about like how hard it must be for men you know like they are expected to be just on all the time in this non-emotional way that like they're humans too you know i live with two of them and they've got big emotions and they're not allowed to show that at work and you know, now that we're showing up and going like emotions are important, like they're equally important to to production. I think that they're slowly but surely really starting to buy into it. I feel like maybe you're right. You know, Maybe maybe the leaders of the future are not the ones that are getting up at 5 a.m. and putting in 80-hour weeks. Maybe the leaders of the future that we should be looking at are the ones that make it to their kids' school events and sleep 10 hours a night and go home at the end of a hard day and, and make themselves a lovely meal. Like Maybe that's what we should be looking for in leaders. I mean, that's what I'm looking for in leaders these days, but um yeah, we're at a we're at a very in-between time. I, I think that we could very much go in that direction, but we could also get stuck in the status quo and start sliding backwards. So I have hope, um, but I'm also like cautiously optimistic about it, I would say.
1: Yeah, no, I think I think that's that's fair comment. I think also it's quite easy to live in a bubble and surround yourself by very like-minded people and, and business exactly. and and consequently, you know, I saw a heading a couple of days ago um I think it was in, I don't know if it's UK or global but KPMG were saying that they were asking everyone to return to the office four days a week uh, and previously it had been two and and it, I kind of, I looked I looked at it, I read the article and I thought oh my goodness that's just insane they're going to lose so many good people as a result of that policy yeah. um and then I'm thinking well who 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 are making these policies how are they you know all equally is that you know like you say maybe Maybe we're just kind of surrounding ourselves with these, um, these like-minded people and ultimately we are going to see this slide back. I really hope that's not the case. I know, um, I know a lot of women have been hugely impacted by COVID. I read a SAT the other day, Abby, and it said it was actually, I think it was a I think it was a McKinsey report, and it was so it was based on the US, and it said that 42% of working mothers said they were either at or near burnout.
0: Oh yeah. I, I've, I have, uh, have you, have you read the book burnout yet by yeah. the Nagowski sisters? I have an on repeat on my audible account. I have listened to it three times through and I still am blown away by how much I see myself in that book and how I did not recognize the burnout that I, the level that I had gotten to, because it is, it's just a slow insidious burn. And I think like from a female perspective, it's also really important for us to realize that like, we are um, on a path that intersects with so many other folks that are, are going for that, that equity that we feel that every human deserves. Um, so it's almost like the fight can't even have started yet with, with how little we've achieved for everyone as a whole. So, you know, when I look at the, um, the progression in tech for white women, for example, like that's, that's great. Um, but if we just stop and become the new problem, then it's not enough. You know, we need to keep going. We need to be bringing uh, folks along with us. And, and I think that that's, um, that's part of the charge that I hope that we have the bravery for, because it could be really easy to do that. I got mine now, figure it out, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, and I think that that's, that's largely what men did. And that's how we got ourselves into the situation that we did. Um, and so I, I'm, hopeful uh, with the community that i see at least in in the design industry that we really are looking at diversity and inclusion from more than just a male female perspective um, and looking to be more intersectional
1: definitely i mean we set up a program earlier this year in our business called ede it stands for ethnic diversity excellence program and it's working with final year ethnic ethnically diverse students and it's really around how we can support them in that final year whether that's their final year um, projects, or whether that's in terms of CVs, um, you know, interview practice, networking, all of all of those kind of things. And and our plan for this program is that we want to open source it, and give it to all of our competitors, so we can scale, um, and and we can you know hopefully really start to sort of drive. Um, drive something because I, I, as far as I'm aware I haven't found any other UK businesses in design in you know in, in sort of our field doing anything in this in this area like that so if we can if we can then scale that then hopefully we can we can start to create some some real impacts um, but I think the other thing actually which has started to occupy my my brain now is, is the next step beyond that, which for me is socioeconomic diversity, because that's the one that you can't, it's not as easy to spot, and actually, you know, and, and privilege, and actually, sometimes it's really deeply hidden by individuals for a whole host of reasons, which I absolutely get, and it's very easy to make assumptions about people, which are often not the case at all, so, and actually, I think, you know, that's, That's probably really central going back to the point that you were talking about in terms of information architecture and and how Mm -hmm. people, you know, journeys through that, you know, that that mess, whatever it is, or to make sense of mess, how that actually, you know, how how different people's brains work in different ways based on all of those influences and factors from, you know, the first decades of their lives.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's also the case that, you know, uh, an organization's information architecture is often saying a lot about their ethics, you know, coming down to just simple things about like, when you make a user fill out a form, what are the gender options that you're providing? What what information are you asking about their background? And do you have a reason to do that, that is altruistic towards the user? Or are you asking for that information to tick a box for your shareholders to say that you have a diverse community of user base? Um, You know, in a lot of cases, I see the latter and that's something that is actually hurtful Uh, and so, you know, that understanding that information architecture, even when done in this like progressive lens can be harmful to people, I think is, um, it's a charge that we all have to remember, especially if we're making information architectures all day and, and we don't even know those words yet, it's like, how would you, how would you learn about that, but if you look through kind of the history of classification. You'll see a lot of really not great stuff in there, y'all. Like it's, it's pretty bad. Categorizing people has a really bad effect, and it, and it's not um it's not all that different in the way that we're we're doing that online today as as the early days of um of creating this mess that we've created. So, yeah, I, I think it's um information architecture is a power, but it's one that uh, comes along with a weight, and and you have to know the weight that you have.
1: Yeah, absolutely, a huge amount of responsibility attached to it. Mm-hmm. I, I could talk to you about this for literally days, but I, what I what I really want to hear is about your new book and and how you chose chose the area and and tell us a little bit about about sort of how far you've got with it so far.
0: Yeah, so in my first book, How to Make Sense of Any Mess, um, in the I think it was the second or third round of test readers before it was published, I got some feedback that. Um, there weren't enough examples of the deliverables of information architecture. And so I ended up adding kind of at the last minute, these 10 diagram types and the 10 diagram types are, they've gone on to be probably the most popular part of the whole book. Um, People call them the pizza diagrams because they're very simple diagrams that are all around the context of pizza. Um, But what I started to hear when I'm doing lectures and, and teaching from students was, okay, yeah, I can look at a picture of a journey map. I can look at a picture of a swim lane diagram or a block diagram, but I don't know how to make one. Like, how do I take that thing that you made about pizza and make it about this really complex part of our organization or this big goal that I have for myself personally? And so it started to kind of dawn on me when I was teaching with the book that there was a lot of craft that went into diagrams Um, and a lot of theory that wasn't covered in the first book. So um, in December of last year, I sat down to write a very short book on diagrams. And it is no longer a very short book on diagrams. (laughs) It is now very long and is in the middle of editing. So um, it's called Stuck, the Purpose, Process, and Craft of Diagramming. Um, And I'm really looking for it to be like like a lifelong diagrammatic partner, like a book that you can go to when you're stuck and you're trying to figure out a way forward. Um, I think that diagrams are pretty universal. Like there's so many fields that rely on diagrammatic thinking, but if you look into the academic and even the practical discourse around it, it's so siloed. Like you can find lots and lots to say about like oh, how to make a, um, a technical architecture diagram in this particular standard body. Or you can learn about uh, flow diagrams from the perspective of healthcare providers using them for diagnoses. But what you don't see is a lot of uh, focus on what are the things that those things have in common? Like all of these diagrams emerged over time. Most of the concepts behind diagramming are more than a hundred years old and really tie back to the industrial revolution. And we've never really like sat down and gone, how do you teach people how to do this? <laughs> it's like, not how do you teach people to look at one and know if it's good, although that's part of it. But like, when it's your turn, when you're the one that's stuck or you're the one that has a team that's stuck, where do you start? What do you think about? What goes into it? Um, and what I found is that there's a lot more to diagrams that isn't even on the diagram. It's like, if you've done the work up front, the diagram part is kind of easy. Um, but I think that people need to be given that kind of a framework to really allow themselves to think. Pass the template because that's, um, you know, all these tools we have online uh, to make diagrams, they'll give us a template for it, but they won't inform us on, like, how should you think about the intention behind this diagram? How should you test a diagram with an audience? How do you know when it's right? Those are all sort of these mysteries that you kind of pick up over time in your career. My goal is to make that journey a whole lot speedier. um, And also, I just want to see a whole lot less sucky diagrams. Like, my goodness, they just, so many terrible terrible diagrams out there
1: i couldn't agree more i have seen a lot of terrible terrible diagrams i think it's a brilliant mm-hmm. idea and i love the idea that um that you know there's there's that context to it as well it's not just about mm-hmm. them it's about about the rationale behind it do you think because i know obviously we have um you know we talk about left brain and right brain people do you think people mm-hmm. i oh, i've got this theory that i think some people think in think certain ways in certain diagrams people think in diagrams mm-hmm. and yeah. um, and they they often and people gravitate towards certain forms i i've seen it and i don't think they even realize they're doing it
0: yeah no people have diagrams in their head all the time i i often tell my students that if you ever see a stakeholder Making pictures with their hands, you know, moving things around a lot with their hands, there's a diagram stuck in their head. And if you give them a marker and you get it out of them, you can have a much deeper conversation. Because when we're all in our heads, we're just in like our own mental model about things. But I have seen the power of just putting one point on a page between two people unlock the potential for them to actually get on the same page. I mean, I know that that's a saying, but it's true, you know, being on the same page as someone means sharing that diagram that's in your head. Um, and yeah, we, we all walk around with them all the time. Uh, I definitely think that there's there's people who have a more visual design bent in, in their world. Now, a controversial point that I'd like to make is that in my experience, those people actually have a harder time making diagrams than those that don't have the visual sensibility. The reason is because they get stuck in the aesthetics. They get stuck in how wide the boxes are and the kerning of the type. And sometimes that can mean that they've gotten stuck in their own model and they're trying to, you know, create this perfect crystallization that someone else is going to understand, but they haven't actually done the work to understand the audience or the context or the intention of the diagram enough to know. And so when I was teaching, especially in graduate school, I had these very talented visual design students that were in my class and they would bring in these gorgeous diagrams and we'd hang them up for crit and people would be like, Oh my goodness. These are so gorgeous. Look at these icons. Look at these color schemes. But then it would get time to critique it from like a subject matter or like the impact the diagram had. And it would all fall apart. You know, the the color schemes were supposed to not mean anything. And we were assuming they did mean something. They used two different types of lines just for variety's sake. And we were implying meaning to those differences. So there's a lot, I think, um, with a visual design education, and I, I myself went to school for visual design initially, I think that you have to set that aside in some cases for diagrams. It's like once the diagram is helpful to the person it was meant to be helpful for, you're done. And from a designer standpoint, that means lots of ugly diagrams, but ugly diagrams are not the same thing as bad diagrams. And I think that's a really important point.
1: Abby, I think you need to be teaching MBA classes as well as visual design ones. Uh-
0: I, I would love the opportunity to teach MBAs how to make better diagrams for sure I mean first thing like stop dragging the templates in PowerPoint stop doing it they're terrible <laughs>
1: <laughs> so true so true I mean I've got time for one final question I'd be really interested to know what advice you would give your younger self because I think all of all of this incredible experience and and self-awareness that we've we've spent the last half hour plus talking about I'm yeah. sure, There's a lot that our listeners could learn in terms of, um, you know, of of what, what, what would you have said to your your 25 year old self?
0: Mm. Oh, oh, 25 year old Abby, Uh, I would definitely teach her the word perfectionist, but in a different context than the way that she knew it at that point. I was definitely chasing the wrong things for the first couple of years. I wanted the thing I was creating to be perfect. I wanted it to never change. I wanted everybody to think that it was the right thing. And what I've noticed over time is that I had to let go of all of that to get anything done that I was ever proud of. Because the thing that you design at the beginning of a process does not look like the thing that comes out at the end ever Uh, people are the main material that you're working with, which is the mushiest material on earth. Um, and yeah, everything is going to change underneath your feet. I mean, like in the time that I've been designing for information architectures, all of the tools have changed. The web has completely changed. I mean, I remember the first time that I saw a website update asynchronously and it blew my freaking mind. I was like, wait a second how are we gonna make maps of this anymore if things can change on the page? And so revisiting everything from the way you practice to what you think you know. Um, yeah, if I could clue myself in like a decade earlier to that, um, I'd probably be in a different place, but I also really like where I ended up. So yeah, I, w- I would say um, you're on a good path, but also it's not gonna be perfect. So stop expecting that.
1: <laughs> I think that's pretty good advice. Abby, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for giving us some of your your time. Now, if any of our listeners want to reach out and get in in contact with you, what are the best ways for them to do that?
0: So I have a website, abbycovert.com, that has everything I've ever written, everything that I'm thinking about currently. I also publish a monthly email list. Um, So I'm just talking about my process, mostly about the new book, kind of giving a little insight into what happens in my studio every month. Um, And I'm also on all the social medias. I'm not very good at keeping up with those things. I'm kind of an email person. So if you have like a big juicy IA question, um, I love answering emails from readers. It does take me some time, so know that, but yeah, I I love doing that. So Gmail is how you can reach me.
1: Thank you so much, Abby. Look forward to- Yeah, thank you for having me. And and hearing um, about the next book and and seeing it in print. Me too. (laughs) Very excited to see it in print. (laughs)
0: Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed listening,
1: please rate, review and subscribe. And keep your eyes peeled for our next episode.